My name is Matthew Feeney. I'm a policy analyst here at the Cato Institute, and it's my pleasure to welcome you to this panel, which will focus on criminal justice and the border. As I'm sure many of you will recall, the last presidential election uh, featured this, these topics uh, rather prominently with discussions of border wall, uh, deportation force, and upping the number of border agents. But when we're talking about immigration, we also have to talk about law enforcement in the interior. There are programs that help the federal government partner with state and local law enforcement. There's been uh, discussions about cooperation with ICE uh, and other federal agencies. Uh, sanctuary cities are, of course, in the news, uh, as is DACA. At the border, we, uh, of course, have been talking a lot about the border wall as well as proposals to up surveillance on the border and increase the number of border patrol agents. And I think since uh, this administration was sworn in, we've also been speaking a lot about the state of the Fourth Amendment at borders uh, and at ports of entry with uh, a lot of discussion about uh, the searches of electronic devices and checkpoints in the 100-mile uh, uh, zone in which CBP can operate. And to discuss all of these issues, I think we have a great panel put together. You have the detailed bios in the packet uh, that was at the registration desk, but I'll briefly introduce the speakers in the order in which they'll speak, and then after everyone's spoken, I'm going to moderate a Q&A session. The first speaker is Dara Lind, who is a senior reporter for Vox, covering immigration policy and politics. Before coming to Vox, she worked in immigration policy at the advocacy organization America's Voice in Washington, D.C. Laura Donahue is a professor of law at Georgetown Law, director of Georgetown Center on National Security and the Law, and director of the Center of Privacy and Technology. And in November 2015, the U.S. Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court appointed her as one of FI's amici curiae under the 2015 USA Freedom Act. I'm sorry, the second speaker will be Jay, not Laura. I hope I didn't scare you there. Uh, the second speaker, Jay, uh, is a principal and head of security services at the Chertoff Group. In this role, he advises clients on a broad range of issues, including homeland and border security management, global commerce and chain security, critical infrastructure protection, risk management, and strategic planning and implementation. But for the purposes of this panel, I'm very pleased to have him because he was uh, acting head of US Customs and Border Protection, and which, as many of you will know, is the country's largest law enforcement agency and is tasked with securing our nation's borders. Uh, please join me in welcoming Dara Lynn. Thank you, Matthew, and thanks to the Cato Institute for sponsoring what is what has been an excellent conference for the last three years and is only getting better. Um, I'm going to flip the script and for a panel on criminal justice in the border, going to talk entirely about enforcement of immigration laws within the United States against people who are unauthorized but who have been here and settled. And the reason for that is that if you think of the border as the interface where immigration officials can detect, apprehend, and arrest unauthorized immigrants, that isn't, the horse has left the barn on that one, or rather the horse has kind of already gotten into the barn. When you think about the unauthorized immigrant population in the United States right now, it's overwhelmingly a settled population. Over half of unauthorized immigrants have been here for a decade or more. There are four million US citizen kids who have at least one unauthorized parent. It's for the most part, a population that came in during the 90s and the first half of the 2000s, and has since kind of stayed here and put down roots. There are a few reasons for that. Um, one of them, ironically, is that as border security started increasing in the 1990s, and it became easy, more likely that someone coming back and forth was going to get caught entering the US, people who had been you know, circular migrants for work purposes settled in the US and brought their spouses and often children to the US rather than going back to visit them often in Mexico when they, you know, when they were during the off season. So immigrants essentially successfully evaded the border when the border became a place where they were liable to get caught. And so when we're talking about immigration enforcement over the last 15 years or so, what we're really talking about is the border coming to them in a sense, the opening up of a new interface inside the United States where people who have been living in the United States can be apprehended and turned over to immigration officials. And that interface, in large part, has been the criminal justice system. There are a few reasons for this. One of them is political. It's very easy to, uh, you know, people don't, 
people want immigration enforcement. They want something to be done on immigration. But they also don't want people who have been in their communities to get torn from them. They don't want families to get separated. You know, there was a spate of stories in the weeks after President Trump's inauguration about Trump voters realizing that, you know, thinking that their unauthorized immigrant husband, you know, would be one of the good ones and would be allowed to stay. And instead they were getting picked up because of a decades old traffic violation and going, oh, well that, he wasn't what I meant. That wasn't why I voted for him. Um, so to kind of deal with that cognitive dissonance, using the criminal justice system as the way that you apprehend immigrants, well, if they're being picked up by cops, if they're already in jails, if they're already convicted of crimes, then they must be the bad ones. They must be criminals. It's much easier for a politician to make that case than it is for them to have immigration agents directly just going into communities and sweeping everyone up. The other reason for that is policy. It, there's been a massive expansion of federal resources devoted to immigration enforcement, but not nearly massive enough that they'd be able to actually conduct the mass deportation efforts uh, that people are often so scared of, or even to apprehend as many people as they have the capacity to deport in a year. So they often think of state and local law enforcement agents as a force multiplier, as the way that they're going to get access into these communities that they wouldn't have the resources to staff field offices in themselves. Uh, there are also plenty of templates for, you know, federal local cooperation on, on various specific issues. There are templates for, you know, data sharing and interoperability. And so the federal government has kind of used those to expand its involvement, it, or expand the extent to which local law enforcement ends up becoming a feeder for federal immigration agents. Uh, so there are a few ways that they've been able to do this. And during the Bush administration, it was kind of more of a... They were figuring out where they were going with this. The Department of Homeland Security was new. The creation of a separate agency for interior immigration enforcement was new. They were still trying to figure out what the deal was. And under the Obama administration, it got very professionalized and frictionless and, frictionless and kind of achieved a veneer of technocracy. Um, starting under President Bush, you just had immigration and custom enforcement agents, ICE agents, going into jails and going through and going cell to cell and asking people, where were you born? Are you here legally? And then, you know, picking them up, taking them into ICE custody, putting them into deportation proceedings. Uh, that was, you know, somewhat more manpower intensive from ICE's perspective because they actually had to have the dudes in the jails. So the Bush administration started signing memorandums, memorandum of agreement with local law enforcement agencies, that local police would essentially do some of the functions of immigration enforcement, that they would, you know, be sufficiently trained and be, you know, part, joint partners, either by becoming task force forces that would literally, like, go out into the street during immigration raids and help arrest unauthorized immigrants, or working in jails to do the job that ICE officers were doing under the, the CAP, the criminal alien program, and just going cell to cell and asking people about their status. The th problem with that is that, especially the, you know, task force going door to door model, uh, created a lot of, it, it was a very high profile, very, you know, blunt instrument. So it achieved certain things in terms of arresting a lot of immigrants, arrested more than 50,000 immigrants in 2009, which was kind of the peak of the program. Um, but it also created a lot of friction with local immigrant communities. So the Obama administration moved to a model where an existing database that the FBI operates in conjunction with local police and you know people get their fingerprints scanned when they get booked into jail and the FBI runs the prints to figure out if they're wanted criminals for any particular thing. Uh, they developed interoperability with that and with a database that also has fingerprints but that has access to the immigration status of people who are non-citizens uh, and either are, are legal, were legal at some point, but their visas expired, or have had contact with immigration officials before. So they essentially had a way to find out how most of the time when someone was here without immigration status, that 
created a ping on the database. Uh, it then allowed ICE officials to send a notice to the jail saying, hey, we know you have someone who's unauthorized. We would like you to hold them for 48 hours after you'd otherwise release them so that we can just take them into custody. Rather than you guys releasing them, they go out into the street, we have to track them down. We'd really rather you just kind of hold them over for a bit. Um, there were substantial arguments, and there continue to be arguments, that this is a Fourth Amendment violation because you're telling jail officials to just hold people without, you know, to violate habeas corpus for 48 hours at a time. Um, but that was, you know, that only got brought up as there kind of started to be local resistance to this program, to the Secure Communities Program as well. The initial pitch of the Secure Communities Program was that it was a lot nicer than the, you know, the task force agreements because it was just, it was just science. They weren't doing, they weren't profiling. It was just science. They were only picking up people who, you know, were already being charged with or convicted of crimes. It was all very, as the Obama administration itself portrayed itself as being, very technocratic and hands-off. But as the Obama administration set deportation records in the first few years of its administration. And as it became increasingly clear that many of the people, while they were deported because they'd come into contact with the criminal justice system, weren't necessarily serious criminals in their own right, there began to be a little bit of friction, not only among immigrant communities themselves, but among state and local Democratic officials who weren't super thrilled that a Democratic administration was putting them on the hot spot uh, to, you know, to cooperate with federal immigration enforcement. The interesting part of this is that much of this local opposition was driven by law enforcement officials, particularly law enforcement chiefs themselves. Uh, and there are a few basic reasons for this that go to kind of the general law enforcement, pro general problems we know of in when th things are incentivized in law enforcement um, that have also turned up, it turns out, in the immigration context. Uh, one of them is that when you think about it, if we have 11 million unauthorized immigrants currently in the U.S. because they were trying to avoid contact with immigration officials, so they stopped crossing the border back and forth, when you create a new interface where they can come into contact with immigration officials, they're going to avoid that too. And as the police started becoming identified with ICE because of all of these forms of federal local cooperation, it began to be a real concern, and in some cases a documented fact, that crime reporting rates decreased among Latinos in general. Because you're not necessarily going to go in and report a crime if when they come to your house to interview you, your unauthorized immigrant mother is right there, and maybe they'll fingerprint her and check her papers. So... That certainly for law enforcement executives who were less interested in enforcing immigration law, which was not what they were hired to do and you know, wasn't, a crime, wasn't part of the crime rate that they were being assessed on, but actually made it harder for them to close out cases, started seeing the federal government as getting in their way. The flip side of this is that in jurisdictions that were enthusiastic and among officers who were thrilled to see inf immigration enforcement as part of their jobs, it changed who they brought into the system. Uh, studies continually show that all the people who get brought into the deportation system are more disproportionately Latino than the unauthorized immigrant population at large. And that's especially true with these federal local cases. Uh, one review of the fingerprint program, Secure Communities, showed that 93% of all people checked in were Latino, as opposed to 70-something percent of the unauthorized population as a whole. And furthermore, I want to say that there was a standard profile for people who got picked up via Secure Communities, and it was a young Latino man. So it's not entirely clear whether this is law enforcement being disproportionately in these communities anyway, or whether this is a change, except that an earlier study uh, when these programs began to come online of a jurisdiction in Texas showed that right after they got access, 24-7 access to ICE to check people's statuses, the number of Latinos who were being booked for low-level crimes skyrocketed. Um, and of course, anecdote is not data, and we don't have great, the federal government is not generally great on immigration data, but there's certainly, given what we know about the incentives that police officers face, there's certainly suggestive data that 
an incentive is created that isn't actually in line with what local officers are theoretically doing for a living, but that does allow them to create a more efficient pipeline. So all of this leads to, you know, increasing recognition among state and local officials that something needs to be done. And so they spend the last several years of the Obama administration pushing back against the argument that they should be providing all information automatically of anyone who gets booked into jail. Successfully get the Obama administration to agree to accept that, yes, it's not actually mandatory for them, it's actually optional, and ultimately to put a new program in place that, in theory, allows local law enforcement to decide who should and shouldn't get turned over. That gives them a little more discretion in saying, okay, this is only someone who's been booked for a traffic stop. That's not a big deal. And then the 2016 election happens, and all of that gets blown up. And what it's replaced with is an attack on those same jurisdictions as sanctuary cities, which is a term that you, that you absolutely have heard, and which doesn't have a policy definition, but which is being used by the Trump administration to refer to anyone who doesn't fully cooperate with ICE requests to hold immigrants over after they would otherwise be released from jail. Um, this is actually leading them to not only make a big stink about, you know, trying to get them stripped out of federal funding and all of that, but it's actually changed the way that ICE apprehends immigrants in particular to demonstrate that sanctuary cities can't protect immigrants from getting deported, which is ironic because politically the argument is, oh, they're, they're the reason that these immigrants are out on the streets. And then on the policy level, i.e. at the level that actual immigrant communities will notice, but white voters will not, they are being aggressive to prove that sanctuary cities can't actually protect anyone. They're going into courthouses, which the Obama administration did not do, and when asked about it said, well, it's only because we can't go get these people in jails. They're deliberately engaging in immigration raids in, in so-called sanctuary cities because they're saying, well, we have to do this because we would have picked these people up in a safe space, but you're forcing us to go out on the street and to have everybody else seeing these ice trucks in panic. It's an ironic thing that the Trump administration has simultaneously made a political point that immigrants are inherently criminal uh, and that it has kind of developed this this independent way of picking them up because they have less cooperation from within local police and local criminal justice systems. But it's also not that illogical because when at, at the federal level they talk about rule of law, it's basically a, you know, prosecutorial discretion is definitely a, a thing that has been, that you know, that any law enforcement officer has to deal with. But when you have dedicated immigration agents, the question is, do you enforce immigration law against a bunch of low-level offenders or like do big investigations? You're still doing the same kind of law. Uh, when it comes to local law enforcement, however, there are a bunch of resource questions as to what kinds of violations of the law you want to pursue, where you want to spend your agents. And the calculus of when immigration enforcement should happen at the local level is determined by politics over policy in all cases, because immigration enforcement is fundamentally not something that is a local police officer's job. And local police officers, you know, even in Arizona can't deport anyone. And even in California can't, you know, can't stand at the door as ICE agents try to come in. So what we actually have is a situation where the criminal justice system is being used to, you know, which, which has been used for the last decade to kind of put an acceptable political stamp on, well, these are the immigrants who ought to be deported. Now that's falling apart uh, because local political institutions realized that it wasn't great for them. And now the federal government is you know, realizing that without that local cooperation, they need to be taking things in, into their own hands. So it's going to be very interesting to see what the next interface along which the federal government attempts to get large numbers of unauthorized immigrants without expending the massive resources that mass deportation would require looks like. Thank you, Darren. 
Uh, now, moving, I, I should mention that uh, you're free to sit at the table or to take to the podium, Jay and uh, uh, Laura, depending. But So if you prefer to sit, that's, that's totally fine. I think this would be perfect right okay, here. Thank great. you. Yep. I'm going to make a bit of a pivot and, and move away from some of the immigration issues and, and talk about the border and all the different challenges that it actually faces. I mean, before <clears throat> retiring almost eight years ago and joining Mike Chertoff and his consulting firm, I spent 33 years working through the various ranks up to the most senior ranks of the organization of acting commissioner during the Bush administration and into the first year of the Obama administration. And when I, when I hear and give talks about the border, when I look at the transformations that has occurred over the years, I would say I would take a look at a most critical point in time. And that unfortunately was the tragic events of 9-11. Because there have been many studies, many looks at the different organizations that actually do border security or border management, whatever the titles were at the time of the different studies. But it took the acts of 9-11 of to go ahead and actually create the Department of Homeland Security when the president signed the Homeland Security Act in November of 2002. And I had the good or bad fortune, depending how you look at it, to be locked in the basement for the next several weeks, several months until we stood up the Department of Homeland Security on March 1st of 2003. So keep in mind, end of, end of November, it was signed. And here you create one of the largest, most critical departments in this country's recent history uh, in a matter of just a little over five months. And when I take a look at the different organizational challenges that was put together, certainly immigration, immigration enforcement at the border and in the interior enforcement were critical and key components. Because I look back at CBP today, and even I look larger at the Department of Homeland Security's mission, it's really focused on keeping terrorist and terrorist weapons out of the country, focusing on transnational criminal organizations, effective border management and border security, but also at the same time having an effective strategy that promotes the economic prosperity of the country and legitimate travel and trade. So as you're looking to do these things at the border, you have to focus on what are the essential mission priorities. And it's always interesting over the years to when people have their own definition of border security and what that means, I know we're not going to do it here, but if I was to ask a few folks, tell me what you think the border is, where the border is, we'd have a variety of different answers. There's 5,000 miles of border between the United States and Canada that, that does not get a lot of attention, and for good reason. You have to go ahead and deploy your resources, your infrastructure, and your critical budgetary dollars against where the threat and the risks are. We have about 1,953 miles, to be pretty precise, on the southern border with Mexico. There's been an awful lot of attention there, predominantly because of the immigration attention that comes with people crossing the border illegally, but also because of the transnational criminal organizations that are operating south of the Mexico, the various cartels that actually own those transportation plazas and networks that move people, drugs, and other illicit goods, whether it be drugs and people north, money and, and weapons back. So that becomes part of the border enforcement strategy. But I think what's the critical piece too is people lose sight of the fact of the physical border is not just those miles between legitimate ports of entry, but there's 328 ports of entry throughout the United States and overseas that are actually the functional equivalent of the border, where the full authorities of the border agencies get, get carried out to protect the homeland. There's also over 200 locations around the world where DHS and CBP position, positions resources to actually begin that whole border security process early in that transportation or in that uh, travel movement. So that if you're worrying about trying to go ahead and secure the border at that line in the sand, it's too late. So for deploying your resources, using a defense in depth or layered enforcement strategy is very important. So as we even flip to one of the Trump administration's, you know, most recently uh, the courts in Hawaii said you can't go ahead and go forward with the travel ban because of it. you can't just necessarily target people based on national origin. Uh, I would submit that one of the most critical pieces that we've used in a post 9-11 environment is to use the screening information to go ahead and identify who the people are of concern. And every day at our borders today, based on the CBP statistics that are published out there, there's about 800 people a day of, that are stopped at the border. This is not by the border patrol between the ports of entry. This is at airports, seaports, and land border ports of entry that actually have national security concerns. And until those are resolved, they have to go ahead and be processed at that point, either for denying admission or admission or perhaps arrest. 
And these are for the whole of government. These aren't just DHS or CBP or ICE's mandates. <clears throat> these are often requests from the national security community and also for, for the FBI as well. And as the executive agent for many of these different uh, federal agencies and intelligence community agencies, that is done at the borders. But the border itself, I mean, it's interesting when we hear things put out by the administration and the other executive order about uh, adding more people to the border patrol, adding more fence, that there will be a fence from sea to signing sea, I think was one of the quotes early on. As if that was the first time that had ever been considered. Uh, I can take you back into the, the 04, 05, 06 timeframe when we actually did go ahead and double the size of the Border Patrol from nine to 18,000. And, and frankly, you know, while that was very much needed, adding more personnel is a key piece of it, but it's not the only piece. The Congress actually put an, uh, a piece of legislation out there called the Secure Fence Act in 2006. It said there will be 700 miles of fence. Arbitrary number, not based on any thought, any analysis, any studies whatsoever, just an arbitrary number. We actually were able to negotiate back with the Congress to get it down to a number of about 653 based on a mile-by-mile -mile assessment that was done of the border of where referred to as tactical infrastructure as opposed to a wall is needed to go ahead and be a bit of an impedance to keep people from being able to go ahead and be able to cross easily in urban areas or in locations where there's a high pathway because of positioning on the other side of the border. When you have the Arizona mountains, makes no sense to put a fence there. When you have some of the issues in other parts of Arizona that are principally you know, federal land with a lot of environmental considerations, putting, putting fence out there that could have negative impact on the environment or perhaps even have with the International Boundary and Water Commission, deflecting of water into lower-lining communities south of the border couldn't necessarily do it in good conscience. Go into Texas privately owned land to be able to go ahead and either make an offer to take and acquire that land or to use eminent domain, not an easy process. So I'm painting the picture that first off, it's not operationally needed. It has to be studied in a very thoughtful way of what is needed and go out and actually put the tactical infrastructure, the fence or whatever the phrase is today as wall in a very appropriate way, but based on operational analysis and considering where the threats are and where it actually does make sense. The walls, I think, also that are being considered today are a little bit certainly wiser than what was considered previously in the past with some of the mesh wire and double fencing, Constantino wire, other things that were put out in place going back many years ago. <clears throat> if you're going to put a, a tactical infrastructure uh, along the border, make sure that it's smart. Have some sensor capability so, again, you can see the adversary. So as you're then deploying your resources to that particular location, when people will try to go ahead and circumvent that fence, whether it be under, over, or around, uh, that you have situational awareness so that you can go ahead and identify and classify and then go ahead and deploy your resources for apprehending. Again, just building a wall is, is not going to be the sole solution. And it's been fascinating to watch it over the years and even most recently, some of these things have come back again, whether it be these old medieval catapults to be able to shoot 100 to 200 bales of, of narcotics over the fence they're still going to come at you unless you actually do the other part of the mission, which is, again, disrupting and dismantling trans transnational criminal organizations because people will still try to go ahead and get their bad things into the country or out of the country. I think the other part is I take a look at tunnel detection. As long as organizations continue to exist, they're not going to stop their criminal activity. And those of you that have actually worked in law enforcement for a number of years, you have to go ahead and find ways to not just you know, move and displace and make it more expensive for them and have consequences for it, you got to take a look at what are the underlying reasons of why the criminal activity occurs. It's, it's money, and it's the business aspect of it. And, and I hate to give any of these transnational criminal organizations credit of calling them, you know, fairly wise business folks, but they are, they are not completely unwise. And I think it's important to understand what the motives of the crime are. So we can put that tactical infrastructure, a fence, a wall, out there, but we need to also be looking at the investigative aspects on both sides of the border and engaging our international partners on what's happening south of the border, what's happening internationally, and also tying it to the interior as well so it is a complete continuum as opposed to just having a physical defense at our border, whether it be between the United States and Mexico, Canada, or at our international side. I think the other piece that often gets lost too is, is again, kind of the, the ebb and flow or the give and take of why things happen too. Uh, 
Oftentimes we saw under the previous administration when there was policies that were not clearly stated, and we saw this with unaccompanied children coming into the country, uh, it became a flow of people. Uh, we've, see, we've seen this over the years prior to the last administration as well, where there was inaccurate or weak signals that come from an administration on what are gonna be the practices and the policies and procedures. People take that as an incentive, I can get in and I can get benefits. And that has an impact on the border security of the country when those things do happen. So being consistent, having strong policies, and I'm, I'm here by no means to advocate for or support the administration's priority. I've, I've spent my time in government and I'm long gone now for, for eight years. But having strong policies is one of the first steps to make sure that you have strong border enforcement. I think the other part is international relationships. The diplomacies and bilateral or trilateral or multilateral you know, policies and procedures that actually get negotiated out to make sure, like in, again, the case of the unaccompanied children, what was happening? Taking a look at the circumstances, what was happening? Three countries primarily in Central America, Salvador, Guatemala, and Honduras. I mean, some of the highest murder rates in the world there, the violence, are, is incredible. The economy's not too solid. So the, the reason for people to flee was, particularly with getting their children out, because of the situation, the dynamic there. So engaging with the State Department, engaging with, again, those host country nations to see what they could do to provide for a better situation is a piece. It's not a sole solution, but making sure that is a piece of it. Transiting through Mexico. There has long been efforts to work with Mexico, and some have been very positive and productive, and some not so much. But to make sure, again, if the transportation routing is moving through a place like Mexico with not as much you know, difficulty as it probably should, how can you make that a better improvement for border security of this country? So again, it's going back to that notion of making sure our U.S. border is not the first place to go ahead and engage with your adversary. So I think those are key pieces. Then once it gets to our border, that is where the primary responsibilities reside. But as we hear about interior enforcement, that becomes a piece as well. So it's, again, this whole layer of enforcement, defense and depth strategy. But again, it's, it's a whole of government. What's the Justice Department going to be doing with their prosecutorial uh, discretion? That is one of the key things that people oftentimes look at. And again, those that are involved with law enforcement have to deal with state or local or federal prosecutors. You know it varies from location to location. And criminal organizations play that. They will go ahead and see where their opportunities are to first see if they can succeed with their criminal activity. And then if they get caught, where's my consequences going to be the least impactful to me or to my business? And, and again, I hate to give criminal organizations credit, but they certainly do look at these things very clearly because I can give you an example. In Arizona, going back a few years ago, the threshold for prosecution for marijuana was 500 pounds. If you did not exceed 500 pounds of marijuana being smuggled across the border, you would not be prosecuted unless there was some other aggravating factors, you know, recidivism, aggravating circumstances, whether it be an assault, carrying a weapon, other things that could be aggravating factors. And we would see routinely 480, 490, 495, just to stay below the threshold. And I'm sure people involved in law enforcement see these things happening with some recurrence as well in your communities and the studies that you do. And this is what you know, gets dealt with by the border agencies. So making sure there's strong policies and make sure that there's prosecution and consequences for it. But there also has to be, you know, finally kind of a, a smarter policy too to make sure that we're looking at this holistically and not just focusing, focusing just on one aspect of it. How do we look at it in its entirety? How do we go ahead and continue to make incremental improvement? Because just building a wall is not gonna go ahead and be a single solution. There has to be the right level of technology and certainly the resources. The executive order also called for 5,000 additional Border Patrol agents and I think 10,000 for ICE to do interior enforcement. That doesn't happen in six months or 12 months. When you take a look at a hiring process of what it, what it takes to do it thoughtfully and, and in a considered way, that is a two or three year undertaking. And when you take a look at also the turnover and uh, the rate of, of individuals that actually resign, retire, transfer, you know, those have to be factored in. So those numbers become greater just by natural occurrences that happen in the workforce. And I think, you know, the last thing I'll, I'll, I'll touch on very briefly is uh, how the border has changed and, and how it's important to use uh, technology, not just for whether it be the UAVs operating on the border or the long range in, uh, integrated fixed towers with cameras, radars, sensors, 
but also, you know, things that we can use more effectively for, you know, targeting people before they get to the U.S. We talked a little bit about the, the travel bans. Those, those were not put in place because of, you know, the nature of the people in those countries. It was really the nature of those governments not being able to go ahead and meet the requirements that the U.S. government and the Department of Homeland Security is asking for the minimum standards of being able to provide information, the confidence that we can have in their ability to control their passport information and the biographic information that goes into those passports. And if they can't make at least a good faith effort and be able to provide a demonstration of the level of con control that they have over that personal sensitive information, different from PII as we may see it here today, basic, basic law enforcement identification, documentation to make sure people when they present themselves, they are who they say they are, so that that can be run through the systems that are used to go ahead and identify people of concern before they get on a plane, emphasis on before they get on a plane coming into the United States. That is a border, you know, because the, the, the actually the, the vetting of individuals begins before that plane goes wheels up. And why is that? Go back to 9-11. Because the targets of, of aviation continues to be one of the greatest fascinations of terrorist organizations today. We continue to see different plots that get disrupted. And it is because of the international community focusing on these things in a holistic way to try to go ahead and have better information, better technology, and better screening methods to identify people of concern before they get on a plane. Because if they're on a plane, it's probably too late. Even if we hope to get them when they get here, it's going to be too late because they'll look to go ahead and have that mid-air explosion coming over from uh, foreign locations into the U.S. So these are put in place for good reason. And, and again, very last piece on, on the social media, and I think Laura will probably talk about it a little bit more. The current policy that was put in place in the 2008 timeframe, I'm still the signatory on that, that policy as the acting commissioner at the time. And it gets an awful lot of fire and a lot of, a lot of concerns and a lot of appeals in, in, in the legal world. But I can tell you, as the world changed, going back again for three, 33 years in the government, when people used to come across the border with referred to as pocket trash, and again, people in law enforcement or around it know what that is, that's critical information to be able to see if somebody has actually been involved or could be involved with criminal activity. Diaries, pictures, other things they may have with them in their hand carry or in their, on their person. Those are critical pieces of evidence to be able to make a determination. And as the world changed, and we have now iPhones and other electronic devices, that's where people store their information. So it still is under the search authority of the border agents to be able to look at that for people coming across. It's unique being able to go ahead and have that border search authority. It's the broadest search authority anywhere in the world without a warrant. Uh, it is continuing to get its challenge. But it's for good reason. It goes back to that mission that I talked about, securing the homeland against terrorist activity and transnational criminal organizations. So, Matthew, I'll stop there. No, thank you, Jay. And uh, to finish off, we now have uh, Laura. Yeah, so I, I shall not disappoint you. Uh, it's my view. <laughs> it is my view. It is, it is not constitutional, actually, the, the regulations that are in place and how they're being used. So uh, first, I want to, though, thank uh, Matthew Feeney for the invitation to be here today. Uh, I always love coming to Cato because the conversations are great, and we can really get into, uh, into the arguments and the discussion. Uh, and while, Dara, you looked at shifting, how the border is shifting and movement, and Jay, you started out by looking at the physical border and the various ways in which, because that's insufficient, um, what I am picking up on is one way in which that's been pursued, and that's search of electronics, uh, and particularly digital information. We've seen, particularly in the last three years, just a radical uh, uptick in terms of the number of these searches. So in fiscal year 2015, CBP uh, searched 8,500 travelers, uh, searched their electronic devices. In 2016, the number went up to 20,000, uh, and this year the numbers are in line to go up to above 30,000 people who have their electronics when they're traveling over the border. Significant number of these, of course, being American citizens as well, U.S. citizens. Uh, now, the government position, which Jay has articulated, is that this number, if you look at the overall number of travelers coming into the United States, it's, it's less than one one-hundredth of one percent, right? It's an exceedingly small number. And this argument becomes important for legal purposes because it is precisely on these grounds that discretion has been denied by the courts to other searches that have occurred. But that's one of the arguments put forward. Uh, another argument is that it's critical for national security to stop 
stop terrorism, uh, child pornography. You didn't mention this, but many of these cases deal with child pornography, organized crime, etc. And these are all very important, compelling governmental reasons. Um, and the third uh, position is that it's consistent with the well-established border security exception to the Fourth Amendment uh, in terms of privacy interests. Um, Beyond the search of these devices, the additional concern that I would raise uh, relates to the cloud, which is also digital information. Uh, because we're seeing access to the cloud at the border in two ways. First is through the devices themselves. Once you log on to a device, you have access to all this cloud-based data. And second is by demanding that travelers turn over social media and other information, including passwords, so that CBP and ICE have access to all the social media accounts, including password-protected information. So in December of uh, 2017, 2016, CBP started asking foreign citizens coming under the visa waiver program to turn over this information. And it was emphasized at the time that this was entirely voluntary. But then by January of 2017, we see the Council on American-Islamic Relations lodging formal complaints with the Department of Homeland Security saying that US citizens are being asked for all their social media accounts and the passwords. Uh, and John Kelly in February of 2017 he, of course, was coming in as Secretary of Department of Homeland Security. Uh, he said that the department planned to use it for all visa applicants, uh, asking them for their social media and their passwords. And failure to provide this would mean denial of a visa entering the United States. Um, now, these searches are particularly problematic. Uh, they're, pro they're problematic for a whole host of reasons. On the Fourth Amendment side, the, the laws that we have really focus on luggage, right? Not digitization and kind of this alternative digital information. Uh, these devices, as Jay noted, carry an enormous amount of information about individuals' lives, um, which is revealing and very intrusive. Uh, and by the way, it's not just in the present, but it's over a period of years. This is really exacerbated in the case of cloud access. Uh, the Supreme Court in 2014, in a case called Riley versus California, uh, really has recognized that mobile devices are something different. There's this wonderful quote from Chief Justice Roberts in this case, where he said, saying that physical search, uh, looking for uh, cigarettes on an individual, is the same as an electronic search of a phone is like saying there's no difference between riding horseback and taking a rocket ship to the moon, right? They just, they bear no resemblance to each other. They're just different in kind, what, what's going on here. But it's not just the Fourth Amendment, right? There are also First Amendment uh, rights of association, speech, and religion that are implicated. There's Fifth Amendment self-incrimination and due process. There's Sixth Amendment right to counsel and client attorney privilege that's implicated. There are trade secrets and so on. Um, and... Uh, yeah, um, and what we're starting to see because of this are more and more uh, efforts to challenge these searches that, that are going on. So in uh, in uh, Al-Sad versus Duke, this is a case filed in Boston at the US District Court this past September, September 13th. Uh, this is a case to watch. This is a case that's gonna be moving up through the courts. We had House versus Napolitano. In this case, it was somebody who was uh, helping to contribute money and run the Bradley Manning Foundation. This was the soldier who was, uh, who was suspected, I now found uh, guilty of disseminating information through WikiLeaks. Uh, there, an individual at the border was detained. His uh, laptop, his telephone, his camera were taken from him. That information was kept for seven weeks until they submitted a letter. They finally returned the devices but kept a copy of the devices, and the government settled the case out of court because he was profiled basically on the basis of his political beliefs, and the government decided to settle the case. Um, now, what is the state of the law? If we look at the laws themselves, they're really the two players in the electronic search realm are ICE and CBP, right? So CBP, of course, provides security at, at the borders and ports of entry by inspecting persons and cargo that are going in and out. ICE ensures compliance with customs and law enforcement, federal laws, et cetera, and they investigate criminals and networks. Both of these agencies have uh, laws under which they operate and directives or regulations issued underneath these laws that allow agencies to search electronic devices without any individualized suspicion. That means every traveler, whether it's a US citizen or a non-US citizen, whether the information has to do with a legal work product or client attorney communications, whether it's medical information, whether it's any other sort of data, anything that you carry as you cross the border can be searched. And as I said, increasingly, there's this effort to get at social media accounts, which you don't carry with you as you cross the border, but happen to be in the cloud. And this demand to actually get your passwords or your biometric information um, in order to gain access to both devices and cloud, cloud data. 
The relevant statute for CBP is 19 U.S.C. 482. Uh, that statute basically authorizes agents to search any vessel, beast, or person. You know, these were put into place in 1942. So any vessel, beast, or person uh, that they suspect is carrying contraband and to search any trunk or envelope to look for illegal materials. Now, the courts understand that law fairly broadly. You can search vehicles for aliens as well as contraband. You don't need to have probable cause, but you still have a standard of reasonableness that applies. Uh, the CBP 2009 directive, uh, which Jay signed, includes, it applies specifically to electronic devices, and it includes any device, any device that may contain information such as computers, disks, drives, tapes, mobile phones, and other communication devices, cameras, music, and other media players, and any other electronic or digital devices. So basically anything with digital information on it is included. In the course of a border search, an officer may examine those devices and review and analyze that information. No individualized suspicion is required. They say they can search the legal materials, the medical records, the journalists' materials, uh, business and commercial information. Anything that's potentially covered by client attorney privilege, um, are not. it's not necessarily exempt from a border search, it may or may not be subject to special handling procedures. Um, if the legal materials are suspected of being evidence of a crime, they have to go to the chief counsel prior to the search and let them know that they're searching it, but only if that material is suspected of being involved in criminal activity. Um, there, the other possibly sense of information, like medical records or journalists' notes, uh, that, that can be searched uh, without any, any probable cause or reasonable suspicion. And this information can be shared with any agency. Uh, the individual does not have to be present for their devices to be searched so they can take your electronics, send you on your way, and keep, keep the electronics there for further search. They don't have to notify you uh, what they're doing uh, in that particular case. There's no notification requirement. Uh, they can detain the device for a brief reasonable period of time, but uh, in, in, the, in the regulation, it says it's ordinarily within five days, but report after report is showing that up to seven months, eight months, this information or the devices are actually being kept. Um, if there's no probable cause to seize the information at the end of that period, the copies have to be destroyed and the electronic device returned. Um, currently, it's not being used. Uh, uh, in June of 2017, Kevin uh, McClelland, who's the uh, acting commissioner for CBP, said that lawmakers... Uh, told lawmakers that agents are not allowed to use the devices to look at the cloud through the, de through the devices themselves. Um, this is somewhat at odds with earlier statements that have come out of DHS on this. Now, for immigration, the main statute for INS or, or, sorry, comes from the Immigration Nationality Act, INA, Section 287. There also are regulations and guidelines that have been issued. So there are a number of directives from, uh, from IO over at... Um, over at ICE that have, that have issued it. The, the main directive came out at the same time that CBP's directive came out, and it largely runs along the same lines. It's, it's largely very similar. Special agents can review and analyze computers, disks, hard drives, and other electronic and digital storage. Uh, this regulation also defines devices very broadly as any information that contain information any information, such as disks, drives, tapes, mobile phones, and other communication devices, cameras, music players, and any other electronic or digital devices. Uh, ICE agents, special agents, can search, detain, seize, retain, and share that uh, with or without any individualized suspicion. Uh, consent is not required. Uh, searches are to be completed in a reasonable time. Again, there are many allegations that they go well beyond this time, and this information can be kept and shared. Uh, it specifically states, the regulations specifically state, that all electronic devices are subject to search. Any claims of privilege are basically irrelevant. So if you are a lawyer and you're coming through, uh, through uh, customs or you have an ICE agent there and you say, look, these are my files, my client attorney files. I'm currently in a suit against the government. Uh, they can still go through your computer. There's no claim that can, that can stop this at the time. And you can see the rationale for this on the other side, right? People would always claim that that's what's on their drives, but the fact is then that information can be collected. 
Um, okay, now there are uh, these statutes and the regulations raise, as I said, a number of fourth, first, uh, fifth, sixth, and other uh, amendment concerns as well as, as other concerns. So on the Fourth Amendment, you know, the Fourth Amendment reads the right of the people to be secure in their persons, houses, papers, and effects against unreasonable search and seizures shall not be violated. All right, that's the basic language. And unreasonable in the Fourth Amendment, at the time of the founding, it meant against the reason of the common law. I've written at some length about this. I'm going to historian. I've written a lot about the original meaning of the Fourth Amendment. But since 1967, what the Fourth Amendment means is something that an individual sees as a reasonable expectation of privacy, and society is uh, is prepared to recognize that as reasonable. So, in the uh, it's there's a presumptive requirement for objective understanding of reasonableness. Uh, first of all, that probable cause is is involved. What is probable cause? Well, it's a, a fair probability that contraband or evidence of a crime will be found in that particular place, uh, and that a warrant will issue. Right. So, anything that does not have probable cause and a warrant is presumptively unreasonable and therefore violates the Fourth Amendment. That's, that's the general state of the law. Now, there are a number of exceptions to that. One of them is the border exception. Uh, now, the border exception has been recognized from the founding of this country. The rationale is that it comes from sovereignty, uh, from, from our sovereignty as a country. You can exclude aliens or materials from the United States. This idea is that the sovereign's interest, as one court put it, is at its zenith uh, at the international border. It was not formally recognized by the Supreme Court until 1977 in a case called Ramsey. This was a case in which heroin had been mailed uh, to the United States, and the court determined that in that case there was reasonable suspicion that the envelope contained drugs and they opened the envelope and the court recognized uh, this border exception. In 1995, it was extended to people leaving the United States as well. So uh, it's not just people who come in, but people who leave the United States that might be subject to these searches. Uh, now these broader searches have been extended to uh, what Jay mentioned was is called the functional equivalent of the border. A functional equivalent is something that acts as a border, for instance, an airport that receives international flights. Uh, arriving into that, that port of entry is a functional equivalent. There are about 328, I guess, uh, ports of entry to the United States, both here and overseas. So if you clear customs, say in Ireland, which I hear is the way to go back and forth, <laughs> is to go, is to clear in Ireland if you're coming from the UK, it's much faster, um, that, uh, that that's considered a port of entry to the United States. That's a functional equivalent. Uh, the border exception has also been extended in terms of the distance from the border. So within 100 miles of the border uh, is considered that that area can still be searched under this border search exception where you don't need a warrant in it. The, it's called the extended border, right? The, the extended border extends uh, actually, actually Actually further. Now, there, there have been a number of cases that have dealt with the functional equivalence and with this idea of roving, uh, roving searches at extended borders and, and how far those go. Uh, the, the most important case uh, on this really was in, uh, in the 1970s. Here's this case in 1973 called Almeida Sanchez v. United States. It was a 5-4 decision. Uh, that case actually ended up leaving open so many questions that the following term, the Supreme Court took four border search cases to try to put to rest many of the questions that arose. And one of the issues that the court considered in one of these cases was the fact that searches actually impacted a very small percentage of individuals was a reason to deny the use of that kind of search because it left so much discretion to law enforcement in making, making a determination as to whom uh, an actual power could be applied in that particular instance. Um, now, there are two kinds of border searches that can occur. One is routine and one is non-routine. Uh, the courts have largely said that for routine border searches, you don't need individualized suspicion. So a routine border search would be the typical search would be your, it's a traveler coming through the border. They just do a physical search, for instance, of somebody crossing a, a, an actual border. They might search the car. They might search the, search the individual. That's a routine search. A non-routine search is something that is particularly invasive or particularly offensive. So the first case on this that distinguished it was a rectal exam. It was a case called United States versus Montoya Hernandez, where somebody had cocaine in a balloon inside their rectum. They got an order to do a rectal exam of this individual. And the court said that, that this was beyond the scope of a routine customs investigation, or, or sorry, inspection. Um, although in that case, customs did have a reasonable suspicion that that individual was involved in drug smuggling. So if it's a non-routine 
examination, non-routine uh, search that's, that's, that's taking place, it has to, you have to have a particularized and an objective basis for suspecting wrongdoing to justify an invasive search. That's the standard that the court has set. Now, uh, there are, uh, yeah, so, so we'll leave it there. So there are, so, so for instance, like a body search, a body cavity search, you know, the rectal search, the strip search, uh, the detention of a balloon swallower until they pass all of the balloons that have passed through them. These are all considered non-routine searches, and so you have to have individualized suspicion to carry them out. Okay, how does this apply to, to laptops, right, or cell phones? Well, the problem is that now we're traveling with all of this information on us, much of which has nothing to do with criminal activity and everything to do with our private lives, who we are, what we believe who our friends are, who, what our relationships are, uh, what we like to read, what we do, how our work is going, our in, intim, the most intimate details of our lives. And the question is whether this border exception applies to, to electronic materials. And if so, what level of suspicion is necessary? So you have some people currently saying you need probable cause if you're going to search US citizens to this degree. Others say, no, you need reasonable suspicion, which is the, which is the standard for, uh, for, for, for kind of the non-routine non searches, right? Others say, no, we don't need any of that. We can search anything at any time. Well, the Ninth Circuit considered, in a case called Cotterman, whether a, a laptop uh, coming across the border, uh, whether a forensic search of a laptop qualified as a routine search or a non-routine search. And the decision in that case in the Ninth Circuit was, this is a non-routine search. When you take a computer and you subject it to forensic examination, you're not just looking at what's actually on the computer or open files on the computer. You're also looking at anything that's been deleted on the computer. You're looking at all photographs. You're looking at all address books. You're looking at all correspondence. You're looking at all the Word documents, all the PowerPoints. You're looking at all of this information that's included on the laptop. And the idea is that this is much more intrusive than just opening up a laptop and seeing if it's working and if, there's any, if there are any open files on it that show that illegal activity is underway. Now, there are a number of cases that go against this that actually say the border search exception is broad and there is no reasonable suspicion required. Uh, and so these other cases point in a different direction. So in terms of whether these searches are routine searches or non-routine, uh, you know, my position on this will shock you, Jay, uh, is, is, is I don't think these are routine. Uh, this is non-routine. You get this information not just for an individual at that moment in time, but across time. You get it for years at a time. You get it back into their history. Uh, and when you add to that this idea that you can also access all cloud information and demand the information, I think it's deeply problematic. Um, I don't have time to go into detail now. The, the, the last thing I'll say is, is that the Fourth Amendment issues, it's just part of, the, part of the package, right? There are also very serious First Amendment, religious, political speech, and association concerns, the right to speak anonymously, to be forced to disclose your private membership in expressive organizations, like being part of a political group or a social club. You know, the First Amendment protects your right to join with others when you have a shared message. This is a, the a seminal case of NAACP versus Claiborne uh, Hardware Company. In addition, you're protected uh, to, you can join groups with private memberships, right? That was NAACP versus Alabama. These are important cases in First Amendment law. You have the right to expressive materials. You have the right to confidential information. Um, the Fifth Amendment right against self-incrimination and due process is implicated. And here, you could draw a distinction between passwords and biometrics in terms of what you're being forced to turn over, uh, but this right against self-incrimination is the right to the privacies of the mind and not to have to reveal these. And you could argue that that's exactly what's on our cell phones, are the privacies of the mind. And finally, you have the Sixth Amendment right to counsel um, without the additional protections that are afforded to client attorney privilege. Thanks. Thank you. Uh, please join me in thanking all of our speakers. Thank you. So we do have about, I think, nine minutes for uh, q and I'll uh, remind you to please wait to be called on uh, and to wait for the microphone. Uh, and if you would like, please announce your name and affiliation. I would uh, like to remind everyone that this is the question and answer session, not the statement and answer question. We will get uh, more, more questions in if we keep the, the questions brief. Uh, questions are sentences that end in question marks. Uh, I'll uh, start with this gentleman in the front. Thank you. Hi, my name is Stephen Keat. 
Uh, I'm a former uh, Foreign Service officer. Um, my question is directed at Mr. Ahern, although I would appreciate anyone else who has comments on it. Uh, I'm not a constitutional lawyer, so I won't ask about uh, how you evaluate uh, the constitutionality of searching phones and laptops, checking Facebook accounts, and so on. But just from a very practical point of view, if I'm a terrorist and I want to do things against the United States, am I going to actually have this available to you? I mean, it seems to me that when we're you know, spending resources on this, it's, you know, especially in today's world where everything that we're doing is being publicized, it's a waste of time. I don't see the utility of it. I mean, we have to weigh the interests of private citizens uh, who do have privacy rights that we want to protect against securing the homeland. But are we really securing the homeland when we're spending resources on this sort of thing? Thank you. Well, I, th I think one of the things, take a look at the, the numbers. And I would say the resources are being wisely deployed. Um, we're all entitled to our own opinion. And I'll, I'll give you some of my thinking on it. I think when you take a look, there's like 340 million people a year coming into the country. And, and we're running through a lot of the different targeting systems to learn as much as we can. And, and please know, this is not being used you know, in a very random way. The numbers, while they may seem large in the aggregate, what did you say was one-tenth of one percent? It's a pretty small majority. One one-hundredth, I'm sorry, thank you. Thank you. You're making my point. <laughs> and, and I know when, when I left the organization, again, it's been eight years, so I'm not still defending them, but I'll just give you the context. Everyone can form their own opinion. Uh, the, the lion's share, regardless of what might be some of the media reports of, of what's happening, are, are individuals that actually were of some national security interest. The numbers today of what CBP stops at the borders, air, land, and sea, that actually have some level of of national security concerns, and you can look it up on their website, is over 800. And even of that universe, if you take a look at the, the number that Laura put out there, that still doesn't equal to the total universe that actually is, is being considered. I think the point is these are individuals that are having their electronic media looked at for good reason. I would submit, without looking at each one of the cases, and we did do some analysis over the years before I did depart, probably could have every one of them met a reasonable suspicion standard and maybe even a probable cause standard. But what you didn't want to have is your border agency bound to having to go ahead and meet that standard and be able to articulate that standard in every circumstance or get to the point of having to go ahead and, and get a warrant when you're trying to make quick determinations and judgments. And again, there's going to be varying opinions on this. But I would tell you that as we were charged with securing the homeland, and using the authorities that we had and putting policies against those authorities, do everything we possibly can without being judged after the fact for how could you not have seen or known about this? This happens on a frequent basis in this country. Every time there's some kind of an, a domestic terror incident, well, did you look at the social media? Why didn't you go back and look? There was a pattern there that could have been predicted and been articulated that might have been able to stop something from happening. And again, Homeland Security begins with people at the border. And I think that's a critical part of trying to take a look at. Not looking for everyone to agree with it, but I would imagine that many of you would second guess and judge if things were not being done and something happened. So, um, may I? Please. Mr. Key. So, um, uh, I would make three points in response. 30,000 people is not a small number. 30,000 people having their electronics seized and searched for any evidence of any criminal activity. Uh, that is not a small number, and, and, and there's evidence that this is being done on basis of political views, religious affiliation, nationality, ethnicity. This should be deeply troubling to us as citizens that this is actually happening. Um, the second point is, uh, you know, Jay's suggesting it's limited by resources. Actually, the resources uh, required for this are decreasing while the information that's available is increasing. So there are many documented accounts or documented studies of how more and more of our lives are online. So there's more information that's there. And access to it, the costs of getting access to that are actually decreasing for the government. And the third point is I would just draw the distinction between national security and law enforcement. You mentioned terrorism, you know, and I'm pretty sure we didn't have 30,000 suspected to 
terrorists that we had probable cause for tried to enter the United States last year, uh, or this year. That, that, that's, that, those are the current numbers here. But what's happened is border authorities and the border search exception is turning into a general warrant. It is a general warrant to look for any evidence of criminal activity uh, anywhere in our files. I think that's deeply problematic. This is not limited to serious crime. This is not limited to terrorist activity. This is not limited to national security threats. It is any evidence of any criminal activity. And I think that's particularly disturbing because it amounts to general warrant, which was the whole point of the Fourth Amendment in the first place, to prevent that from being allowed in the United States. Okay, we have uh, time for one. I'll take the gentleman with glasses in the back. I want to get to the... Sorry, thank you. <clears throat> Thanks. Hi, my name is Leo Boletsky. I'm uh, at Northeastern University uh, School of Law. I just wanted to uh, pose a question to Commissioner Ahern in terms of... Uh, I was glad to hear you talk about sort of a holistic approach to border control. Um, but all of the solutions that you mentioned basically looked at creating more formidable barriers um, to stop you know, transnational organizations from moving drugs, people, or whatever across the border. And I didn't hear you talk about um, addressing the demand side inside the US. So um, can you talk uh, to that point, please? Sure. Always, always happy to address a question from uh, my former undergraduate institution. So hope everything's still good up there in the back barrier of Boston. Uh, I think clearly, I mean, when you take a look at the different factors, when I talked about the business aspect of it, it's, it's a supply and demand. I mean, there should be more that could be done in the drug producing areas to make sure you find crop substitutions and other programs if you're going to come up with eradication. But dealing with the supply on this end continues to grow. I know you had, I think, some panels this morning about the, the growing uh, opioid ep epidemic that's continuing to just, just get more and more pronounced in this country. But as, as long as there is going to continue to be demand, there will certainly be drugs trying to make their way across the border. And building a wall or adding more Border Patrol agents is not going to be a solution to that. Again, having some of the international policy, that will be important for dealing with relations at drug sourcing and transiting countries. But you have to carry all the way through that particular supply chain to see what's happening, what's going on here with the domestic distribution networks that actually gets those drugs to to the ultimate consumers, and, and how do you go ahead and break that crime down? And then trace the money and the guns going back. I mean, it has to be looked at in a very holistic approach. It seems as though uh, oftentimes there's, there's pressure always pointed at, at the border, whether it be searching of electronic media or why are so many people able to get into the country so easily? Why aren't you doing more? Oh, by the way, we'd like you to do less. And that goes back and forth, but one of the things that does not get enough attention because it does go ahead and, and make the border agents' uh, heads spin when there isn't enough to go ahead and try to find what are ways to reduce the criminal activity, and that is the consumption of drugs. And I won't even go into some of the things that are occurring with legalization, whether that's going to happen to, to have an impact or not. So that was actually perfect timing. It is uh, 15 seconds to <laughs> 310. Uh, I will, uh, so we're going to break now for, for 15 minutes. Uh, restrooms are located on this level to the left of the elevators and on the lower level. Uh, so all you have to do is turn left at the end of the corridor. Uh, we will be back here, uh, I believe the time, I don't want to give you uh, bad information here. Yes, we're back here in, uh, at 3.30. So uh, finally, uh, please uh, join me in thanking the speakers once again. Though. Thank you.